Welcome to Senor Demos to Table 5. So, how special? <laughs> we are here with Jeremy Lloyd from Laissez-Faire Club, who, um, well, he's been a friend of mine for, for quite a few years now. Uh, 2011. 2011, yeah. Jeremy's very good with remembering dates. Good, good for a manager to remember dates. Yeah. September 2011, actually, if you're asking. I have a question for you, Jeremy, to kick things off. So you guys met September 2011? Yeah. How many minutes into meeting did it take for Stevie to tell you his Ed Sheeran story? <laughs> yeah, well, I think, I don't know, Ed Sheeran wasn't like a big name back then, so. Oh, exactly. He didn't feel the, name to, uh, the need to name drop. Um, he was in a band called Solar State, though, uh, Stevie was. And he was wearing his, uh, his band Get Up at the time, like a dress shirt, I remember. Yeah. I was quite oh, smart. Cool. I looked a bit like Samir does in his Instagram. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so all of a sudden you're Indian. <laughs> um, I'll tell you where it was. It was at the Lexington with um, another musician friend called David Jones, who was in a band called Strangers. Oh, yeah. 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 And um, so, yeah, that's where, that's where we met almost a decade ago now, incredibly. Oh, my God. Yeah, that is, that is mental. True. So, uh, Jeremy, how did, you, how did you get into music in the first place? Um, I finished university in 2006, and I wanted to do something in the business side of the music industry because I've got new, no mu- musical talent myself. So I, decided, I started putting on events around London, like hiring out venues and booking acts. Um, I think the first gig I put on was in late 2006, and then I, I went on to book acts like um, Mumford & Sons and Anna Calvi. Ex Ambassadors, I had playing an early show, and that went on for a few years. And then I started a record label doing doing vinyls and uploading songs to iTunes. There was no Spotify back then, and and that sort of merged into management around 2013, 2014. Who was the first act that you ever managed? The first act I ever managed. It was a band in the late 2000s, actually, called King Size. Um, it sounded a bit like the Libertines. It was like that sort of like leather jacket four-piece indie rock band. So I, I, that's how I sort of cut my teeth initially. They, were, they, had, they sold some tickets in Germany, so we went over there a few times. Um, yeah. So that, and then, to the, yeah, I mean, currently I'm, I manage four artists uh, who you know about. Ormond Brown, Sophie Morgan, Ben Hobbs, and a new one called Comedy. Yes. That's very exciting, actually. I think Stevie's had, Stevie's had a degree of influence in two of those, Almond Brown and Carmody. He, he basically uh, tipped me off on both. So it's, we're very interconnected. Um, yeah, your story's not too dissimilar to mine, actually. Starting out as a promoter um, and then sort of starting a record label. But, you, but you, were re- you were releasing a lot of vinyl. Do you still have a lot of vinyl sort of lying around your house? Yeah, you'd sell about 100 copies very easily in, in the first couple of weeks. Um, and then it would usually just go dead, and then you'd have two or, two or three hundred left, which you'd have to store somewhere or throw away. I was thinking about going to the skip actually the other day to uh, to chuck them. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I, there was one release actually, uh, a band by called the Collectible Few. I ended up shipping loads of records to Japan. And this this store was was ordering them in, selling them out, and then ordering again. So that was quite exciting. But that only happened once. Uh, I released about seven seven titles on vinyl, and that only happened on one release. I don't know what it was about that song which made it popular in Japan, but uh, this is the music industry, isn't it? Nobody really has the answers to those questions. Absolutely. 
you you and I have something in common, which I, I remember the first time we got on a phone call and I honestly, you were telling me your life story and I honestly thought that you spoke to Stevie and were taking the piss out of me because it was literally identical um, about growing up in Singapore. Uh, so tell us a bit more about your childhood and uh, how you ended up falling in love with music. Um, well, I was born in 84 um in singapore uh, my mum's from there and my dad was sort of he was he was he was posted out there uh, in the army actually in the 1950s and he stuck around he met my mum in in the late 70s and i came along in, in 84 as i said and um yeah I, I grew up there went to international school and everything um and i remember getting into bands in the early 90s like the cranberries and green day and nirvana it was like that's that's where my obsession with music started i think there was no live music, really. I went to see... The first concert I went to see was Bon Jovi on Sentosa Island. You must know that, uh, Samir. Um, Sentosa Island. I'm sure you've been Which there. Which is now times. Universal Studios. Is it? Yeah. So it's where Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un had their first meeting. So it's kind of like got propelled to the, uh, the national stage. I saw Bon Jovi there in 1995. There was a TV ad campaign. Um, pushing his, his show, and uh, there was this song called Bed of Roses, which was playing on the TV ad, and it was a bit of an earworm. So I listened to it, I, I begged my mum to take me. She, she hadn't heard of Bon Jovi, I only, I only knew that one song, Bed of Roses, but we still went, and uh, yeah, he, I think he, they must have played Living on a Prayer. On, on that note, Stevie, what was your first ever concert? Um, I went, because I was from Guernsey, so it was uh, not too dissimilar in terms of, there wasn't much live music. Um, we used to get the odd covers band coming over. I remember seeing a band called Cool Play. Cool Play. Yeah, yeah. Like the bootleg guess, Beatles. You can guess what um, what what covers band they were for. Um, I was a big Coldplay fan at the time, so that was that was fun. But my first proper gig was I went to V Fest when I was fourteen. Went to see the went to see the Red Hot Chili Peppers who were headlining. I remember being in the mosh pit for uh, Queens of the Stone Age when I was fourteen, which was. Um, an experience. It must have been quite aggressive. Yeah, it was. It was very um, aggressive. The songs of rated R, I think, and um, are pretty heavy. I wasn't. I wasn't the most uh, sort of muscular fourteen-year-old either. Um, quite s- tall, tall and thin, and uh, I felt a little bit out of my depth. But it, I guess it was good training for the Reading festivals that I would then go to for the next few years. Um, what was your first gig, Smith? Uh, some guy named Michael Jackson. <laughs> oh, no way. Yeah. Very cool. Yeah, I was in Singapore. Actually, 95, I think. My dad the same year as Bon Jovi. Yeah. Um, I, I heard something really interesting, that Hall and Oates, one of them is from Guernsey. Really? Oh, I didn't yeah. know. Oh, that's very interesting. There's a few Guernsey men or Guer- Guernsey ladies uh, knocking about in the industry. Um, Robin Sherwell, who Jeremy used to manage, Muramasa. So, who was during this time that when you first got into music, was were you sort of making a living through doing promoting, Jeremy? Um, not really. I had to do uh, other jobs on the side. Like I worked in bars uh, for many years, pubs, and I worked in a call centre as well, cold calling people, getting them to donate to charity, or trying to get them to donate to charity. Um, there was, there were some great nights where I'd have like 150, 200 people turn up and you make a bit of money, but there were some really awful nights as well where nobody turns up and you, you just, you want to run away, but you can't because, you know, you've got to cash up at the end and explain to the uh, venue owner why there was no one there. 
Um, so it's, it's, I, I view it as sort of cutting your teeth, you know, you need to earn your stripes in the music industry. And that, that was certainly part of that. Yeah, I, I had, I had uh, very, I had a lot of nights the same. You would sort of just be staring at the door, hoping that people would come through it. I still, I still have that sort of instinct. Every time I go to a show with an artist that I, that I work with, I'm constantly looking over my shoulder at the door, even when I'm not promoting the show. Yeah, so, so do I. I. I have something similar when I wake up in the morning, I have to chat Spotify data and just like <laughs> hoping it's not like, you know, the numbers are still there and it's not like one day everyone decides not to listen to Spotify. Yeah. Uh, I guess that's the 21st century uh, version. So what was your first real sort of success in the music industry? The moment when you felt like, okay, you know, this, this, this could be it. I, I, I might have a, have a chance of having a career at this. Well, I said the, the promoting, the live shows was very much cutting my teeth, as I just described. Um, I, then I, when I had my record label, I released an artist called Cushy. Um, and he released, I released a single of his called Magpie. This was in September 2013. And then there was a lot of industry buzz and a lot of press writing about it. Then, then it made me sort of realize that, you know, you can, you, you know, it can be done, basically. You know, if the song's good enough and everything sort of clicks and I think people do get into it. So he was being played on the radio quite a bit, Radio 1, and, he, and then he got a support slot with London Grammar, which was very exciting. So I, I guess, and then that opened the door to me managing um, Allman Brown and Robin Sherwell, actually, in, in early 2014. And then... I've gone on as a manager to sort of make a living from, from, from you know, from that. Um, but I guess Cushy was probably the, the catalyst, basically, the, the, the person who opened the door. Um, that's how I sort of see it. How did sort of Allman Brown and, and Robin Sherwell get their starts? I mean, I, I do know this story, but it's interesting to, yeah, it's interesting to, to, to you know, relay it for our, for our guests, our listeners. Um, well, basically, Allman Brown, from about 2014 to 2017, sort of formative years of me working with him he was working a second job as well actually as a waiter in a, in a London restaurant called Hawksmoor and he was doing music sort of you know on the side and during that time he um, got introduced to a sync agent in, uh, in LA um, a woman called Rachel Comar and she managed to get a lot of his songs on US TV shows uh, you know, for example Parenthood and Suits and Criminal Minds Rain, all, you know, all of these shows were basically using his songs. Um, Sons and Daughters was, was, was the one they were sort of choosing most of the time. And so there'd be like a, you know, these TV shows, they pay a one-off fee um, for the usage of the song. And then you get all the exposure off the back of, the, of, of you know, of it being aired. So people Shazam, uh, Shazam the song when it's on TV, and then they go and you know, access it on Spotify or download it on iTunes. So he was basically making an income um, through these sync placements for a number of years. Um, so yeah, that, that's how he got a start, really. That's, that's how he built his audience, which is what you know keeps him going ultimately. The, uh, the you know the, the sort of the engaged fans in in the US mainly, um, and, uh, and some in the UK and Europe, of course, as well. Um, and what would you say are your you know biggest challenges uh, as a manager in 2020, and and also for your for your artists? Uh, what you know, global pandemics, maybe. That, that's, that's, a, <laughs> so that's a huge challenge right, right at the moment. But in more general terms, uh, more specific terms, rather. Um, I think I think selling tickets is a, is a big challenge. I think you can have a lot of traction online. You can have a lot of streams on Spotify. A lot of these sync placements, which I, which I described, 
but actually getting people to come to your show is, is hard as it ever was. I think, I think you need a lot of things to fall into place for people to buy tickets like press and radio. And those are things that are harder to attain and, and definitely take a lot longer. I think like that, that's very much in the traditional music industry, I would say where um, you still have gatekeepers. And if the gatekeepers are on your side, you're not going to get the press, you're not going to get the radio, and therefore the general public are probably not going to be aware of you um, enough to sort of come to your show over the show of a hot you know, buzz band that's uh, in town that week. So that, you know, I would say that's a, that's a very big challenge at the moment. Is that something you found with, with your label artists? Uh, yes, definitely. Um, I think, obviously, I mean, when I, when I first started the label, um, it was sort of just pre-streaming, really. So it was all about sort of hype machine and stuff. And then obviously the streaming area, particularly with Spotify, um, kind of really gave the label uh, a launch pad to, to actually start releasing more music and invest the money that we were making from being added to playlists and um, getting millions of streams. Um, but that doesn't always necessarily turn into into ticket sales, as, as you say. So... Um, yeah, it's, it's, trying to, it's trying to make sure that there's enough going on outside of any success that you have on, on sort of streaming. And also just making sure that I think the live show is, is, um, is as good as it possibly can be. Um, do, you, do you sort of have the same thing, Samir? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of all of them, isn't it? It's not just one vehicle. Or, you know, you kind of want everything going. And it's kind of how do you, <clears throat> how do you kind of drive those things and, and make sure they're all a very high level. Um, but you know, it's, it's a bit different coming from, you know, the label side where, you know, I think a lot of, you know, formerly being a manager and, and kind of switching your hat to the label side, I'm lucky enough where I have a lot of other teams that kind of have to worry a lot of the, about those things, but you know, it's, it's how do we complement kind of our partners when, when it comes to that. So you kind of feel like your main concern is, making sure that the songs are doing well, the, the release is doing well. It's definitely something where it's not, I mean, we're definitely looking at a holistic view of the career, but for us, you know, if, if an artist, there's some artists that I have that don't even tour. So it's a real case by case basis on what sort of they want to achieve, what their limitations are and what they, they want to do and kind of the value that we can bring to it. So, you know, it, it it's a bit different in a sense, like, you know, with the manager, you're kind of constantly going, it's 24 hours. You constantly think of every revenue model uh, versus, you know, I think from an A&R point of view, there is the recorded music. There is all the other aspects that we're worrying about and, and, and you know, making sure ticket counts are there, making sure that the band's doing stuff, but also at the same time, for me, I think it's like personal development and career development goes hand in hand. And I think the artists as well, wherever they are in their lives and, and kind of their goals are, are it, it's a bit different in that sense, if that makes sense. What, what are your main concerns, Jeremy? Is it, is it sort of touring? Is that, is that the thing that you really want the artist to be smashing early on? Or, or what, when you first take on an artist, uh, what, 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 you know, what do you do straight away? And what do you think, you know, this needs to be taken care of? Um, I think image is very important. Um, you know, in, in this sort of social media, Instagram, you know, centric age that we live in. I think that press shots are pretty important. Um, um, I guess making sure they have a, a good team on board, like a, a good, a good, a good press person who's, who's going to pitch their music to the right, the right blogs, which are suitable to the sound that they're they're trying to do. I think that those those two things are, are pretty important. Um, 
obviously if they if they can sort of sell tickets in in their hometown for example it's a london artist if they can sell like maybe 200 tickets in london that's definitely a that's definitely a good thing and uh obviously we're well we're, we're currently living through a global pandemic how how has that affected uh i know your artist careers and your your career right now and um your sort of day to day well i think being a manager you're you're sort of you've got um entitlement to various income streams don't you so for, if you're a live agent at the moment then i think you'd be having a pretty nightmarish time because no gigs are going to be happening for the next three to six months you're not getting any commissions but as a manager you've got you know income from records income from publishing as well as live so i think the blow is not quite as as, as hard for managers um i mean specifically for example Orman ran who i represent he uh, signed a publishing deal in 2017 which just got renewed so that you know there was a bit of income for me I personally as a manager when when that deal went through so it hasn't hit me particularly hard um I think but there'll be other people in the industry I think who will be you know a lot more worried than I am but I think I think the key thing is that the manager is basically has as I say has an entitlement to, to you know bear all, all the income streams as opposed to just one yeah so how how is it has it has it really affected your sort of day-to-day or did you have tours that were, were planned that had to be cancelled? Yeah, I mean, um, Allman Brown was playing a festival in Switzerland in April, um, and he was due to do some UK dates in April. Those have all you know, been postponed um, indefinitely, actually looking at new dates for the UK tour. Um, he was meant to be going to the States with a network band, Wild Rivers. But it's, it's very hard to know, you know, in the context of this pandemic, when to reschedule to. I mean, that's, I think that's a big challenge facing the industry at the moment. Uh, because nobody knows when the pandemic will calm down or if there's going to be a second wave. Um, I saw Harry Styles, for example, he postponed his tour to next year. So, uh, And some people are, are sort of choosing September, October as, as the dates to postpone to. But that's all up in the air, I guess. Well, that seems to be the go-to. It's the same same sort of thing with... Um, so I, I had Henry Green and Ghostly Kisses touring together in April. Um, and we're looking to postpone those dates to September. And I think you've just got to hope for the best really and uh, i think you have yeah, a day in the diary i guess if it needs to be postponed again then i guess that's out of anyone's control isn't it yeah i, I think that's what we're, we're trying to figure out how to balance like i think i've literally told my acts that i think torn's done for the year i don't think we are going to really look at anything till 2021 at least um and i think this is more than just an industry-wide scenario this is a global uh, pandemic, so I think it, it's it's going to affect it's affecting everyone, and it you know it <clears throat> the focus kind of changes for us is how do we keep our artists active in a way that they're still connecting with the fans and uh, more importantly where they are mental health wise as well. I think you know there's there's a balance that we need to figure out of being optimistic and 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 realistic in the scenario because. You know, I was talking to someone the other day and, and another manager as well. And he was telling me that I think it was Imperial College did this um, uh, a model based on the current pandemic. And, and the study, I believe, said something along the lines that we're not going to get back to any sort of full normalcy for another 18 months, especially if we don't have a, uh, a, vaccine. a vaccine in that time. And, and the study, I think, mentioned about the rules tightening and loosening and, and kind of going back and forth. And you're already seeing that second wave in Southeast Asia, like Singapore and Taiwan um, have now tightened their laws for the second time. Um, so it, it's very similar to that model that we're going to see. And I think 
yeah, we can kind of hope, you know, I, I was on a call this morning and people were saying, yeah, they're touring in July. And I'm just like, no one's going to tour in July. Like no. This year is done. There's no point in even, I, like, I think we all need to go back and really relook at this year. And I, I think from my artists, it's, it's the focus needs to be on writing and, and, and kind of having that balance in their life right now. Because I think the tour inside, unfortunately, or any sort of, offline activation for now that involves any sort of, you know, meetups or stuff like that is, is really, you know, we don't know. And there's no point in putting hope in that at the moment. Uh, I think some of the positives that I've, that I've taken from this, which uh, I mean, that sounds weird. Um, but I guess you try and look for the positives in any situation, but, um, whilst <laughs> touring has been, you know, uh, cancelled and postponed and, and a lot of the festival slots that my artists had this year. I mean, I don't know if they're going to get those festival slots again next year, which, which is obviously rubbish uh, when, you're, when you're in the middle of a campaign. But um, I feel like people, maybe it's, maybe it's not such an awful time to be releasing music because, you know, everyone's sitting at home. Um, people are sitting on Instagram. I mean, we've seen a lot of these Instagram live things happening. Um, yeah. I feel like people are maybe more susceptible <laughs> to, you know, the release of music videos. I've just had a music video released today, which has gone really, really well. Um, and yeah, I think, I think, and I guess maybe the kind of music that, that Akira releases as well, quite cinematic and sort of soothing and it kind of feels like the right time for this music to be coming out. Do, do you kind of see any positives, Jeremy? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think pausing everything and just having a bit of time to reflect is not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, aside from the financial implications, I've great sympathy for anyone who's, you know, is struggling in this situation. But I think from a general point of view, just literally, you know, sitting down and, and, and taking stock for a moment is, is not a bad thing at all. Uh, because you're const- otherwise it's a constant rush. You're constantly, cha- you know, chasing your tail almost. So evaluating, you know, what you've done so far in your career and where you want to go, I think this is a great time to actually, like, you know, assess those things. So I'll be asking, you know, all my artists to do that. You know, um, knuckle down writing music and recording music. There's nothing stopping them doing that, especially if they can do it in their bedrooms, which you know most most can do at the moment. So um, yeah, I think that that is a big positive. Are you guys in the middle of campaigns with with your artists? Um, well, I, I Carmody's actually releasing a single uh, tomorrow, so I don't know when people are going to be listening to this. But and going back to your point, I think uh, about whether it's a good time to release music. I, I definitely agree with you because I think you know people will be. Um, waiting for content to be rolled out because there's not a lot else uh, to do at the moment. You know, they can't go to bars, they can't go to cinemas, they can't go to restaurants. So I think there's going to be hopefully an increased audience for any content that artists do create. Yeah, I think it's also there's a need of music. Like it's an escape for a lot of people as well. Exactly. And, And I think, you know, we're very fortunate with a lot of the artists that we work with create incredible moving music that I think people are you know, A, wanting to support the arts and kind of the communities and things they love. And music's a huge part of that. So I, I think, you know, I, I'm in the middle of, I have an artist putting out an EP tomorrow. I have another artist putting out an EP in the next, in the next um, couple of weeks as well. And we're kind of, I'm, I'm about to launch, literally go into three, four different cycles with my artists. But you know, I, I don't think we should stop releasing music because I think fans are wanting to support. And, and I think for, for our artists as well, it's, it's going to be, I think songwriting is going to be really important because it's, it's how they cope. It's, 
it's going to be their outlet in the next six, 12 months. It's going to be something that's even more important to them as well. And, and, you know, I think from that, there's going to be some incredible moments that, uh, that are going to be connecting with fans and, and with humans. So it's a scary time, but it's also, um, you know, I think there's positives and, and I think we're all very lucky. There are people in way worse positions than we are. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're very fortunate that we can sit here with a roof over our head and not really worry about when the next meals come in or when, you know, when rent is due. And, and I think there are a lot of people that, that are struggling that are in way worse positions than we are. Yeah, I mean, anyone who's, uh, you know, part of the live industry, uh, booking agents, promoters, particularly, you know, the kind of promoters that me and Jeremy were. I mean, I, I actually thought that if this happened 10 years ago, then I would have been completely screwed over because I, I made all of my income from, you know, live events. Um, and, and then obviously session players and everyone that's involved with putting on a live show and when that's their career. I think those people are just... Yeah, uh, tour managers as well, of course. Um, yeah. Stage yeah. managers, venue owners. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of people going to be affected. Um, but going back to the musical side, I think, you know, that, you know they say that with great suffering comes <laughs> great art. So I think hopefully we'll see, better, you know, a better quality of music. I mean, that remains to be seen, depending on how, the, how long the pandemic goes on for. Do you think there will be more of an audience for that quality of music? Because I, I kind of have a... I don't know whether this is wishful thinking, but I kind of my instincts are saying that maybe people will. Um, I, I felt like music was, get, was was becoming slightly throwaway, and maybe maybe it was because of the rise of social media. Uh, I mean, this this kind of this kind of starts another debate, really. But what do you guys think about social media and the the impact that it's had on music? Yeah, I mean, it's 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 been a huge way in which you know obviously it's it's a way that fans and, and artists interact but it makes artists so much more accessible than you know kind of when when we grew up you know the artists we talked about michael jackson bon jovi there wasn't really access to those artists okay maybe michael jackson's not the right artist to bring up in re- regards to the word access but um <laughs> no, it's it's one of those things where some people, some people had access yes <laughs> some people had too much access yeah <laughs> Jesus, we need to delete this part. Um, <laughs> no, but you know, there, there, that whole rock star lifestyle was felt like a wall, and you know, that was something we all were just like. There was a wow factor to it, as opposed to now when it's very much a humanity side to it when it comes to social media um, and people are able to connect. I think you know, I was talking to some, another artist of mine yesterday. And we, were, we were discussing. I think for the first time it doesn't feel like a rat race. It's not about getting music ahead of the other people. It's not about, you know, I, I think people are realizing we can slow down and not worry about FOMO because there's no one's really doing anything. There's nothing really we can miss out on. That was, and yeah, that was kind of the point I made a minute ago, actually. Uh, yeah. It's a great time for everyone just to, you know, pause for a second and, and you know, yeah. that's the way we want to go. Yeah, and I think artists has that for the first time where they're not trying to compete against themselves, against their industry, against their labels, and against, you know, unfortunately there are artists that see competitors when it comes to music and there's, they're not seeing that as much and really is going to bring people together. Um, and, and I think 
social media is going to be a very, um, you know, it's always been a strong tool when it comes to that, but it, it, it's, you know, I don't know how to, I don't know how to say this about making it sound like social media 101, which I think we all understand, but I think the, there's still a desire and a hunger to be connected more than ever because of people being in isolated camps and, and, and scenarios at the moment. Well, I think social media in this, to- in, in this particular time is, is, is a godsend because, you know, it helps people to be connected with one another. And uh, I think what you guys were saying, it's, it, uh, even like, you know, celebrities that I follow on Instagram and uh, big, big successful managers and, and, you know, everyone is in the same boat. Like every, yeah. everyone is. So that, um, because sometimes I think one of the negatives of social media is, and I know that artists feel this a lot, um, they're constantly comparing themselves with, with other people. Um, so that, I think that can be one of the negatives. And I don't know, when, when we sort of come out of it and, and the world goes back to being normal again, uh, whatever that will be, um, I don't know, maybe, maybe there'll be sort of a, a bit less of that going on. People sort of presenting their lives in the most positive way possible. I don't know, maybe there'll be slightly more honesty. Uh, people trying to look out for one another, as we were saying. I don't know, maybe, maybe the quality of music, as Jeremy said, you know, maybe pop music might, uh, it might be better off for it. I don't know, what do you guys think? Well, I, th- I think that there's pros and cons of social media, obviously. I think the, the big pro is that, you know, fans from all over the world uh, can, you know, in theory, message, you know, the artists who they look up to, they idolize. So, you know, some kid in South Korea could, could send a message to the art, an artist in New York and just say, you know, I love your music, I love this release, when are you next touring in Seoul? And then, the art, you know, in theory, the artist could respond within 10 minutes and then you have that sort of amazing access. Um, to your idols, which was never the case before. Um, so I think it makes fans, the union between fans and artists' relationship, it, it makes it much closer, which I think is a good thing. Um, but obviously the, the cons are, you know, artists, you know, that old cliche of them uh, posting their, you know, their breakfast or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever mundane daily task they're doing. And then that leads to a bit of a mystery being t- taken away. So it might even sort of put you off the artist because if you, you know too much, in, in the in the nineties, for example, you know, when there was no social media, uh, when there was no social media in, in the nineties. Then you you basically have to get magazine articles and, and and you know radio broadcasts, and the information would be very selective. But now it's just it literally feels like a regurgitation sometimes, which I think um, yeah is not potentially not quite as exciting. No, I, I I agree with that. I mean, the kind of artists that I I mean, maybe I, I'm, I'm probably not. I'm probably not the right audience. None of us probably are right, the right audience for what we're sort of talking about because we're all in our thirties, but uh, and we kind of experience music in a different way. But um, I don't. I don't really want to know what the national are are doing or are, are eating for breakfast. Um, you know, I, I kind of just want to listen to their music. Really, I mean, I, I guess to a certain extent, you do when you do become obsessed with artists. Then I like watching music documentaries and things like that, which kind of give access um, in a more meaningful way. But I, I do know what you're saying. Um, maybe, maybe you don't need to know uh, what people are doing every single second of the day. Well, I mean, Allman Brown, for example, he, he sees, well, I have this, this uh, discussion with him, and he was like, if you ate, you know, we all like chocolate, for example, I'm, I'm guessing. If we ate chocolate every meal of the day, we're going to get sick of it pretty quickly. And I think that is the danger with some social media accounts. It's too much of a good thing, perhaps. Can we talk about how I've eaten my fourth chocolate bar already and three chocolate cookies? And it's only midday in LA. 
I've already finished a, a bar of de- um, Cadbury's fruit and nuts. So yeah, we're on the same boat there. I wouldn't want to eat that every day because I th- I'd get sick of it, as I just said. <laughs> I think some social media accounts have better filters than others as well. I mean, the thing is, it's such a democracy. Anyone can post anything anytime without actually thinking about the, who the audience are necessarily. So that's another con of social media, I would say. Do you think that um, the rise of, I don't know, Instagram uh, has, has affected the quality of the music? Because, you know, major labels are, or any labels, are assigning people based on how many followers they have. Or- I mean, I think, I think then that defeats that. I think what you're saying then is that shit music only just started when in truth there's been shit music since day one. And there's been labels signing shit music from day one. So it's just easier to find that shit music. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think music's just more accessible that we see the shit music more often. <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Fair enough. Um, I think that is a potential problem, though, that labels might be so geared towards, you know, making a return, making a profit quickly, then they're going to look at these numbers. Like if, you know, an artist who has 60,000 Instagram followers, who does throwaway pop music versus, you know, in inverted commas, a real artist who's making, you know, music that could stand the test of time, but he's, but he's only got 5,300 followers. So, you know, most of the time, I would assume, yeah, most of the time I'd assume, you know, the major label in question would probably go for the, the former with 60,000 followers. So the person who's made, you know, making proper music in inverted commas is all subjective. Of course, he gets left behind. So he's got to do it independently and he's got to do the long slog. Um, so yeah, I think that is to the detriment of, of art, as, as you suggest. I just, I just wonder whether, do you think popular music is as good as it was when, when, uh, when you first got into the music industry? Um, well, I, I got into the music industry in the mid 2000s. So that was the kind of the golden age of indie rock when it was just, you know, all the bands like the Killers and the Strokes and Block Party, Razorlight, Kaiser Chiefs. Yeah, that was a very exciting time. And we're certainly like in a different era now. I don't know whether one is better than the other. I think both of them have their merits. I mean, I quite, I quite like a lot of stuff at the moment. You know, as, you, as you know, I keep a Spotify playlist, best of each year, and there's, that's constantly full of new stuff. So I, I don't really subscribe to the argument that music used to be better, particularly. That's not necessarily popular music, though, is it? Mm. Well, you're talking about chart, the commercial, the top 40 stuff. Yeah, I think, I think like, you know, The Killers, for instance, um, the fact that Mr. Brightside, you know, um, you can play that anywhere in the world, pretty much, and everyone knows the words and will sing along. Um, and it, and it's, it's, like, it's like when I was watching the Supersonic documentary, uh, Oasis were just absolutely massive, uh, you know, bigger than any artist could probably get now. Like the fact that they sold out Nebworth, how many times? Two or three I mean, times? Twice, twice, yeah. Um, and and I think that was I think that was good music. You know, I, I mean, what's the story more in glory? When I listen back to it again, you just think, God, this is bloody good. You know, would a band in their situation would that happen again now? I think that there's different forces at play, aren't there? The different cultural forces. Um, what we got, you know, what we're going over before, you know, social media and playlists and all that. I think maybe the, those two things make it less likely for a band like Oasis if they started today to get noticed. Maybe, I don't know, maybe less people go out to concerts as well. They're more like inclined to stay at home and watch you know, Netflix. Or... So I think, I think the, yeah, the cultural setting is very different in 1995 as it is in 2020. So I, I, perhaps I agree with you. Um, what do you think? So I know you're a massive Oasis fan, Samir. What do you reckon? 
if a band came out today with a song like, you know, Some Might Say or Don't Look Back in Anger, would they be as big? I mean, are there even bands that are getting big? Um, you know, I think the sonic landscape has changed. I think, you know, I, this is such an easy pocket to get very negative about and cynical and you constantly hear people saying, well, you know, the music I grew up listening to was better than now whatsoever. But I think we're in a day and age where a kid can go into his bedroom, write a song, and that song reach 100 million people in three weeks. And that's a very beautiful thing that we've never had in music. And I think, you know, at the same time, I, I constantly, to me, to me, the difference between a good song and a bad song is the emotional connection. And at the same time, I don't think it's my place to say that someone else can connect with that song and find some sort of positiveness to it and, and react in that way. So, you know, I, I think while I, I think it's just so subjective to say that this music shit and that music's better um, because it really comes down to that, to that, that person. I mean, you know, if one song, if, if you had a hundred people listen to one song and 99 people hate it, but this one person liked it and it had, a, you know, it saved their life. Then how can we say that's a shit song? Yeah. Then, then it becomes worthy just by, by virtue of that one person, surely. Yeah. And you know, there's nothing, you know, there's this music out there that's more pop, like, let's, for example, the SoundCloud rappers, which to me, I, I don't understand, but they're kids that really do connect with that and actually find a lot of hope in those songs and in the artists, which I can't connect with because it's, it's not for me. Yeah, we can be cynical and sit here forever and sound like those, you know, it, it kind of is. I'm pretty sure when we grew up, there was music that we loved that older people said that were shit. And we were like, well, you know, to me, that was kind of everyone that I hated. It was those 30 something year olds that would tell me my bands were shit and their bands were better because that's all they kind of knew or wanted to know too. So I kind of don't want to be that person as well that I hated growing up. I mean, a lot of people in the industry, you know, dislike Ed Sheeran, I would say, you know, it's sort of quite fashionable to say that he's not that good, but you know, He's certainly found an audience, hasn't he? So yeah. I think maybe, maybe maybe even that's one in a hundred people. But there's a lot of people in the world. Yeah, and he, he's certainly he's certainly done okay. Yeah, Stevie, you have an Ed Sheeran story, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I think what what I was saying is that maybe some of the pop music is more throwaway. Um, I mean, I, I I DJ in London, and I think if you play a song from the '90s or the noughties, then, I mean, maybe it might be the audience, but I would also say that, you know, the audience is pretty young, so it would be 21, 25-year-olds. They, they have these kind of anthemic, um, and it's not just necessarily bands either. It's, it, might, it might be Alanis Morissette or uh, Natalie Imbruglia or, or, I don't know, we were talking about uh, Pure Shores by All Saints the other day. These were songs which were absolutely massive. I, I just wonder whether the popular music now is, is more throwaway. I mean... I'm talking about um, the stuff that is, you know, absolutely massive. Because there's so, there's so much music around. And, there's, and like Jeremy was saying, that, you know, your best of 2020 or best of 2019, there's always a lot of songs on it. But are they usually more sort of alternative artists? Yeah, that's, it's catered to my taste, which are gen is generally sort of indie rock. But I guess in terms of popular artists, 
I mean, you know, Billie Eilish is, is a good example of, you know, someone who's got That's really massive and without throwaway songs, with, with, you know, with an album that everyone seems to love and the yeah. critics and fans alike. No, that's a very good point, actually. Uh, I, think, I think that has actually been a real positive because um, I think the fact that someone like Billie Eilish has become so big, uh, that's, that's really promising, actually. It's kind of changed pop music, I think. There's also no singles on the album, or inverted commas, no singles. I mean, that's what she was told. I think Phineas and her were told there was no like, big hitters on the album, and then they have obviously gone on to prove you know, the industry people who said that wrong. I think what I'm talking about is... is the kind of music which, and I, some of it is is just really, really well written. I mean, like you, me and people. me and Samir absolutely love "Beautiful People" by Ed Sheeran. It's one of the it's one of the greatest songs of 2019. It's it's just the idea that that you know no no songs become really really big unless it's like ten plus people are sitting in a room writing them. I'm not necessarily saying that's throwaway. I just think that maybe the art or the emotional intention behind it has, was lost a little bit and. Billie Eilish has come along and her and her brother have written music which has become just as big as all, the, all of that. And, and that's, that's quite unique, really. I can't think of many other examples. Just having, just having two people in the writing credits, I think it's quite rare in the, in, yeah. in the day and age. That's for sure. Well, I mean, how much of that really is down to the art versus the consumerism of it? You know, I think when we think of those songs from the 90s, they had incredible radio support it was played on every station around the world it was a different game compared to the streaming game now where new music friday comes out the song literally has six to eight weeks to live and kind of prove if it's good enough or not in fact it's probably less at this point probably less than that and i mean is that does that why it feels throwaway because these songs are so much more accessible and coming out at such a speed versus the actual quality of the song. Um, and we're just getting more and more music that the quality... I personally think the quality of songs have increased compared to some of the demos I've heard back in the day to how bands were recording. But I just think the speed of which songs are coming, you know, radio is still very much a dinosaur in the way that it works and the speed that it works. Um, you know, you need... By, by the time something hits radio, you're already done maybe 100 million streams on, on platforms. And mm. then it only gets to radio. Uh, and that's, that takes a minute to get there. So, you know, I think it's, we're, we're in a very interesting time period when it comes to music. But I, I don't know if it's just the art, but I think it's the way that music's consumed as well. And I guess, you know, part of our job is also how do we take that three minutes that we have in front of people? or even 30 seconds and convert them into lifelong fans where just like us, 15 years down the line, we're talking about Oasis. We're talking about those killer songs and that, that connected with us back in the day. Well, I, th- I think that Billie Eilish will, will be one of those artists. Yeah. Uh, and maybe it's because there wasn't 15 songwriters on each song. Um, I, I think, yeah, I think, I think you, I think you raised a good point that there's, I think because a song feels like it only lasts for, you know, three weeks. I mean, I remember the, watching the Foles documentary, they said that they put their, um, they put absolutely everything into, into, you know, releasing an album. And then they feel like the life of an album now is, is like three months. Yeah. Um, and then you kind of got to go and write another one. 
there's a lot. I mean, the artists that I work with, they don't necessarily write music. Uh, they're not. They don't necessarily. Be, they, they can't just write like an album every every year. Um, it, they put a lot into it, and there's kind of like if they if they haven't come up with anything in three years, then suddenly they feel irrelevant, and they. I think that's one of the challenge, challenges. Whereas maybe in the '90s there wasn't there wasn't the same thing, um, or the or the noughties. Certainly not as in tune of the industry, you know, as we are now, because none of us worked in the industry in the '90s and the and the, and the 2000s. I don't think so. I also don't, you know, I think the '90s and the noughties were kind of defined by sophomore slumps, you know? Essentially, you had your first big album, your second album didn't do shit, and you dropped by your third album. As opposed to now, you really have artists that are, you know, I guess because of the speed that music comes out, are in third, four albums down the line, and they're still relatively new artists, and they're just writing more music. So, you know, I think there's pros and cons to it. There's more artists having longer careers because of that. Well, you'd have these huge hits with the first album and there'd be so much pressure for the second yeah. album to be the same. And there's that old cliche in the music industry how, you know, you have your whole life to write your first album. The yeah. second album, you're riding it on the tour bus in 18 months. And, you know, what are you writing about exactly? You know, you've run out of ideas. You know, you're this, rich, so you, know, you don't have much worries. Yeah, exactly. So, the, you know, the, there's disposable income there. You know, there's no more suffering. So maybe the art suffers, um, going back to my previous point. And there were, there were so many instances of, of huge first albums. And then there was this Guardian article around, I think, the mid-2000s, which uh, I think was titled When Bands Fall Off a Cliff, which was generally when they released their second album. They just couldn't, couldn't live up to the expectation. Yeah. Um, but perhaps there's more of a, there's more of a um, sort of theme and interest in long, you know, longevity these days, as you say. Like maybe it takes three or four albums to really get going. And that's, uh, that's a good thing. Yeah, that is. Yeah, that is true. Uh, and also, if you are dropped these days, there's so many, so many options for you to self-release. Or you, it's like kind of the James Arthur thing. He was dropped from a major label, and then he self-released, and he had a massive hit, and then he got re-signed again. Um, I, it wasn't. If you were dropped, even when we first got into the music industry, like ten years ago, kind of felt like your career was over, really. Yeah. I think you said a few years ago, Stevie, to me that an artist can never be dead in, in the fact that, uh, or, you know, obviously mortality aside, um, the fact that if, you know, you, <laughs> exactly, you, can, you can die, you can die. But in terms of your artistic, artistic career, if you, as long as you write a song that, you know, has, has some, you know, gains traction, gets people excited, then you're, you're only as good as your last song. So, you, you know, so you can have a few sort of lean years and then you write this, this hit and then you get going again quite you know overnight i mean i think that's still the case i i had an idea for a segment for this podcast yeah um, speaking of dead music which is albums of songs that you knew growing up and loved but cannot find on dsps in this year oh okay uh, <laughs> yeah um toka's miracle who Fragma, Toka's Miracle. That's not on Spotify. It's, I think the only way that you can listen to that song um, is on YouTube. Um, there's a song that Block Party did after Silent Alarm called Two More Years. Oh, yeah. Which was a one-off single. That's not on Spotify, which is very strange. No, I, um, I would like that to be on DSPs. Um, I think, it's, yeah, it's a good question. Jeremy, would, what would you, if you met your previous well you're, you're if somehow you get in a time machine and you're able to meet 
Jeremy, who's coming out of university uh, and he's just about to start in the music industry, what advice would you give him? Um, I guess be prepared for the, you know, the long slog. Um, I think that there's overnight success happens to very few people, I think. Um, that was um, quite a long time ago now when I finished university, 2006. So almost 14 years ago, incredibly. Um, it's only in the last few years that I've, I've been able to make it a, you know, a proper full-time endeavor. So I would definitely say, you know, be prepared for you know, putting in the hard graft and doing side jobs for a number of years. That would be yeah. the, the key bit of advice. Um, I guess not every relationship you have in the, like, like life, not every relationship you have in the industry works out. That's quite a, quite a big thing as well. I think the House of Commons speaker, John Burke, he said, if 70% of relationships you have in your life work out, then, then you're doing a good job. So that, that would be on you know, the top of the list as well. Because obviously there's, there's some relationships in the industry which have, you know, which have sort of fragmented a bit and, and uh, which I perhaps wasn't prepared for. Yeah. Um, so they, yeah, that, that's definitely something to consider. It's funny. I, I feel like Stevie and I have talked a lot about relationships in the music industry um, and how... There's certain people that you meet that are just very, um, what was the word, transactional. Uh-huh. Mm. And then, you know, there are other people like you guys. Like, I, I, I probably talk to Stevie every there was There was a period I was talking to Stevie more than my girlfriend. <laughs> um, I remember that. Um, and, you know, and we talk very often as well. And I, I feel like they're just people that you just meet and you just have normal relationships with and friendships that you know, blossom into some sort of working capacity, which yeah. I, I feel are the best ways of doing things. Yes, I, I, I definitely think so as well. I think that could be a, a cultural thing, uh, slightly controversial to say, but um, although that's not necessarily true, there, 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 there are definitely some Londoners who are like that as well. But I was going to say the difference between um, Americans maybe. and But there, there are just some people who... Um, who, yeah, don't really have an interest in, in um, you, can, you can kind of tell from the beginning. But that, that's not necessarily a terrible thing either. Uh, yeah. Sometimes I wish I could do that, in all honesty. Yeah, well, yeah, why? I don't know. It feels, uh, perhaps when it feels a bit more cutthroat when I need to be, and sometimes I don't have that. Yeah, I mean, I think it, I think it can be awkward um, yeah, when... If I don't know, working with an artist, if you have to, if you have to get to the point where you where where you drop them. But I think if you're, um, I think if you're friends with that person, then you can explain to them why. You know, I think I think there's I think there's definitely something to be said for just being honest and good to everyone, uh, if you can be, um, because it might come back and bite you in the arse if you're not, basically. And it's the human thing to do. Well, exactly. Of course, yeah. Be kind. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy's been awfully quiet in this be kind conversation. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, th- I think it will stand you in good stead in, in the industry if you, um, if you don't get a reputation for being, you know, a ruthless bastard. Yeah. I think, I think it will, you know, go a long way. So hopefully I don't have that reputation. I don't think you two have, have, have it either. No, I don't, I don't think you do, no. I don't, I don't think we would have probably invited you onto the podcast. Yeah. <laughs> no, we would in this podcast. <laughs> only compassionate managers <laughs> compassionate managers only I mean those are the people we let we let sit at table number five yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> hey Jeremy I have two questions for you yeah go on 
Yeah. Number one, what's your biggest pet peeve of being a manager? Someone said to me a few years ago, management is the best place to be uh, for reasons that I've described. Like you've got, you know, entitlement to all these, you know, streams of income, but on the flip side, you've got to deal with the artists every day. Um, <laughs> all hours every day. So um, I, I actually don't mind that, but I can see how that'd be a pet peeve. What's well, your- it, it, it is sometimes. depends what, what they're calling me about. You know, if they're calling me at something trivial at 11 p.m., then, then it becomes a pet peeve. But uh, generally, I don't mind speaking to them at any time. Um, yeah, so what was the next question? Second one was, what's a common misconception about your work? Outside the music industry, nobody really knows what a manager is. So, that, so, I, so for example, at family gatherings or, you know, when I go out with my friends from university who, you know, work other careers, they're like, oh, you're a music producer. You're, you're an agent. Which, which one is it? <laughs> it was none of those. It's none of those, guys. I've been explaining this to you for over 10 years. Um, <laughs> and still and uh, yeah, every, every time I, I you know, introduce myself to someone, they say, what do you do? And I'm like, I'm an artist manager. And they're like, you know, what does a manager do? They, you know, they, so that, that is um, there's a big, big, big mystery behind the role. So hopefully this podcast will uncover some of that mystery. Yeah, yeah, hopefully, yeah. I mean, sometimes the curtains are nice to have. Yeah, so I think, and a lot of people, I guess, think that, you know, the music industry, there's no money in the music industry. It's like you have to work, you know, in, especially from you know, Asian backgrounds. Um, I think, you know, my, my mom and her, her family thought, you know, that there's no money in this industry. Why am I not being a doctor or a, a lawyer or working in finance? That's a big misconception, I think, that, because it's not a traditional job, there's no money there. But uh, obviously, if you, if, you know, if you have a hit or an artist with a big audience, there, there is money there. Ed Sheeran will, you know, testify. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Billy Eilish will testify to that. And I think, you know, we're, we're just, we're, all of us are, are quite, you know, one, one artist away, aren't we, from, from having that kind of success? Yeah, I, I often have to explain to people how I am making a living. Yeah, that, that's, uh, so where does the money come from, exactly? Yeah. Yeah. Which is a strange thing. Like, you don't go up to lawyers saying, what were your billables last year? How did you get that? Yeah. 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 Well, it's charged by the hour. Yeah. <laughs> there just <laughs> hasn't been a spotlight on the mechanics of the music industry, I think, until, you know, recent years. Because uh, I, don't, I don't know why that is. But uh, I think it's still very much the case that people literally don't know how money is generated. The amount of times that I've had to explain, like how much money a million streams is um, and then explain how it's different in different parts of the world and how different uh, streaming services pay different amounts of money and how you even get millions of streams in the first place. Um, and how the income is split between like a, a master rights holder and, the, and then the artist and, the, and then how does the manager get paid? Um, I mean, let's be honest. There's plenty of people in the industry we met that have no idea how publishing works. No. No, no. Um, and I mean, there are yeah, moments when I have no idea how publishing works too. <laughs> that's, that's a dark course. No, I felt a bit like one of those people actually when you said that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> are you talking about me? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think we all have been there when we're just like, ah, uh, yeah, neighbor and rights. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, Jeremy knows. Uh, the ins and outs and everything, however. Well, it's, that's basically learning by doing. So I've, I've been sort of sitting in front of a computer every day for pretty much 14 years thinking about this. So eventually I learned what publishing was. And uh, Alwyn Brown getting on, on the US TV shows was a big help in that, actually. So 
uh, a, a TV studio will offer a fee for for the publishing copyright and then a fee for the you know the master copyright. So that was how I how I got my head around it in the end. Yeah, through sort of TV placements that helped me a lot. That brings up one of my biggest pet peeves when I talk to managers, which is they're trying to negotiate the advance. And one of the things they try and bring up is the fact that there's a sync history, and that means I should be able to pay more money for the advance because they've had syncs in the past. And, you know, there's some artists that get plenty of syncs, but the artist that's never had a sync and all of a sudden they write an album and the manager's like, yeah, this is 100% going to get syncs. I'm just like, no, like, no one no, knows, nobody knows that apart from the music yeah. supervisor of the TV show. If a manager tries to tell you that their artist is syncable, then I think yeah. they probably don't listen. <laughs> I have said that a few times, though, however. Everybody thinks their artist is syncable. Yeah. Yeah. A rock band, they're like, oh, this will be great on Grey's Anatomy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll, let, we'll let the music supervisor decide, yeah. but you know, you've got yeah. faith in your artist. Yeah, I have, I yeah. have definitely said that. <laughs> I think this song is very syncable, I've said. Yeah. yeah, will you up the advance by another zero? Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, record labels can make money from sync, so I think it's not, it's not a totally invalid point to try and up the advance. Um, Spoken like a manager. Yeah. And then you get all the exposure, all the, you know, so all the Spotify exposure, which will lead to playlisting. You know. Yeah. It can happen. <laughs> Merry-go-round that we go into. Um, well, it was uh, very good talking to you, Jeremy. Thank you very much. This has been fun. Um, <laughs> well, thank you for having me. Uh, I'm honoured to be the, uh, the inaugural guest. Yeah. Yeah, so for some reason, uh, Scooter Braun wasn't available. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You got, you got lined up for the, for the forthcoming episode. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, I'll probably speak to you guys okay, in a minute anyway. Soon. I'll speak to you on a podcast. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. Cheers. <laughs>